Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything, a podcast about getting poised for greatness. I'm Linda Lucina, the Director of Special Projects at Entrepreneur Magazine, and today I'd like to introduce you to Will Dean. Hello, Will. Hi, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. He's the co-founder of Tough Mudder. That's a fitness brand with an obstacle course at its heart. If these challenges, competitors leap over fire pits and wade through icy waters with electric wires hanging above their heads. It's inspired a passionate following who come back for more and who've even tattooed the logo, a man running into an inferno, on their calves and biceps. Now that's customer loyalty. We're here to talk to him about growth and making people feel part of something and how lessons from that fuel the way he runs his business. How are you, Will? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. We're very, very excited. I am fascinated by the Tough Mudder, in part because so much of the challenges have to do with the basest fears that we might have with you know, fire and water and, and everything. What sort of is uh, fascinating to you about that? I guess the most interesting thing is uh, actually to start talking about what Tough Mudder is not. It's not a race. It's a challenge. It's about teamwork and camaraderie. You know, I uh, came up with the idea for Tough Mudder while I was an MBA student at the Harvard Business School. All of my professors said, well, no one is going to pay to do an event that's not a race. You need to have timing chips. You need to have winners and losers. That's important. And the reason people will come back is because they want to beat their time. And that was the conventional wisdom at the time. And I think what's really interesting is we've created a space for ourselves for a team-based event. It's about people getting together. Some of those people are elite athletes for sure. But the vast majority of them are actually pretty normal people who are doing something that's the most challenging thing they've ever done. And the thing to understand about Tough Mudder is, yes, it's physically tough, and you do need to be in at least reasonable shape, but it's as much about being mentally tough as it is physically tough. So we have obstacles that involve getting zapped with 10,000 volts, the electroshock therapy. We have dumpsters full of ice that you jump into, Arctic enema. And um, these obstacles don't require a great deal of upper body strength or cardio, but they do require you to be mentally tough because it's scary. And I think you know, the thing I found really interesting within that is, you know, I always get asked the question, why do people do this thing that's painful and uh, causes them to suffer? And I said, actually, it's fun. And it really is fun. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. And the fun part comes from the fact that you're all doing it together. You're all part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that's the reason Tough Mudder has been successful. You know, I can go for a run when I'm in business in Sydney, Australia, or in Berlin, Germany, and I can be wearing my Tough Mudder shirt and if I see another Tough Mudder, we'll always high-five each other because you're part of something. You've all been through this same experience wherever you are in the world. And we've got a two million person tribe now, and I'm frankly pretty proud of that. It's really interesting that you talk about the teamwork aspect. Uh, Top Mudder was inspired in part by uh, an experience you had after a triathlon with a stuck zipper. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I took part in an amateur event, and um, I came out of the swim, which is the first of the three parts of the triathlon, and you transition into the bike. So got to get my uh, wetsuit off and it jammed. So I turned to the guy next to me in the transition zone and he was two yards away and I said, hey, can you just pull on the zipper? And I was pretty amazed. The guy said no. And why did he say no? Because he was so concerned about his own time. And I had to ask one or two people before I found someone that would give me literally a second of their time. And I thought, there's something wrong with an event that encourages people to be that individualistic and that frankly selfish. And so I said, maybe there's a space out there for an event that's much more about teamwork and camaraderie and most people who do a Tough Mudder come as part of a team. Five or six people is the norm. Um, but when you get there, everyone's helping everyone. And I think there's something really powerful about that, that sense that you're all in it together. And there's a lot of research these days about you know, if you're the kind of person that holds the door open for somebody, you're going to be a happier person. These small acts of kindness and giving back actually make us feel better about ourselves and make us happier. 
And uh, Tough Mudder really is just an extreme version of that. You know, if you're pulling someone out of the mud or boosting them over a wall, you, know, you can feel good about yourself. You helped someone. And similarly, that person gets to experience the gratitude of, of someone helping them when they're struggling. And I think you know, that's a thing I'm really proud that we were able to create. And you design teamwork into the obstacles. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yep. So, you know, it starts with quite straightforward things. So one of our obstacles is called the Berlin Wall. So it's a pretty high wall to climb over. Pretty difficult for most people to get over on their own because it's 12 feet up. So you need someone to give you a boost. That's a pretty simple example. And we have a new obstacle called Pyramid Scheme which is, as the name suggests, a big pyramid, and um, it's too big for an individual to get up on their own. So how do you get up it? Well, you form a human pyramid. People lie down at the bottom, they dig their feet into the mud, and other people clamber up them. And at the top, people have to pull you up. So it's a huge human chain forming, and it's it's great. You're part of something that you just couldn't do on your own. And I think you know, there's a bit of a metaphor for life itself there. You know, there aren't many things in this world that we can truly say are entirely our own achievements. Most of the things that we do or we create or we build, we do as part of a group. And you know, if I look at Tough Mudder as a company, for example, yes, I may be the founder, but I couldn't do any of the things we do without the great people that have become part of the Tough Mudder team, part of the Tough Mudder company. And so making sure you have the right people on your team, you're all aligned around the same goal is so important in life. And you know, the other part of Tough Mudder that's a metaphor for life itself is there are obstacles, things you have to overcome. And again, some of them are about facing your fears individually, running through 10,000 volts, for example. Mm-hmm. And then there are other parts that um, are very much about you know, working together to get over something. And again, I think maybe it sounds a little cliche to some, but I really think you know, that's kind of a metaphor for how you have to approach life. And you know, I'm very proud, super proud of the fact that you know, we get people writing to us after the event who've overcome tough things in life, alcoholism, depression, saying, I did a tough matter. I feel like I can overcome other things in my life. And And we had a lady who wrote to us who was getting bullied in the workplace. And she went into her office the Monday after a Tough Mudder with her orange headband on that says Tough Mudder. And uh, she went to her boss and said, you don't get to speak to me like that anymore. I'm a Tough Mudder. And if you continue to speak to me like that, I'll sue your ass. And that was great. You know, it's, it's fantastic that we are not only getting people to be healthier, physically healthier, but also happier because people feel this sense of accomplishment and pride and self-confidence. I think... No, Tough Mudder boosts people's self-esteem, and I think that's a big, big part of why people come and do it and why they come back and do it time and time again. You have, uh, of course, done your own challenge, and as well as uh, many of your staff. Have you learned about how people solve problems or how you yourself approach certain problems by the way that you or others have approached the challenges? Absolutely, and a good team clearly has uh, diverse opinions, has diverse personalities on it, and people that think very differently. And uh, you know, one of the big things that we as a company have to think about is innovation. It's very important to us. Uh, and I'm sure we've all seen a commercial for a Six Flags. We know how it goes, right? Here's the big new thing for next year. And Tough Mudder is pretty similar. We have to have big, new, exciting obstacles each year. So you have to get people into the company who can... Um, think creatively, who can think outside of the box, and can come up with these new ideas. And then they, those people have to work alongside engineers and people who think about safety and processing and scaling and, okay, we've got to build this in Germany and Australia. And you know, those are very different personality types and very different ways of working and figuring out how to create the right culture that people are told it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to try and fail, it's okay to experiment, but at the same time, We've got to produce 60-plus events around the world that have to meet a certain standard, and that has to be very codified. And there are some things where you can't afford to make mistakes with participant safety, for example. And, you know, we're very, very proud of our safety record. The fact that 2 million people have done our event and we think is an amazing achievement. And the fact that our events have been proven to be safer than marathons and triathlons, we think is a great thing. But to get those two different, very different groups to work together 
know, it's it's a challenge as the leader of the organization, and you have to create a culture that accepts that different people have different things they bring to the team, and they're going to be different perspectives. Different people hear the same thing in very, very different ways, and you know, as a leader, that's just a fascinating thing to figure out how, how you manage through that and how you communicate with a large group of people. Mm-hmm. As a leader, have you uh, ever been surprised by the way someone on your team has worked through one of the challenges in one of the obstacle courses and been like, wow, I didn't know that person thought that way. That's really intriguing. That's a really neat way that they problem solve. It, has there been a, a situation where that sort of come to pass? You know, what's always fascinating is um, you know, how the same person can uh, see something in a completely different way. So we were talking just before we started this broadcast about our logo, for example. Our logo is a man running in the flames. And you, know, you asked me, is he running towards you know, the eye or is he running away? You know, it never even crossed my mind that he might be running away. And you know, that's just fascinating how we can look at the exact same thing and you can see something very differently. And um, it's always interesting to hear how people describe the obstacles Know, how people think about things and even how people physically approach them. You know, some people will see one obstacle and they'll, they'll think this is the right way for me to get up it and someone else will have a completely different um, approach. You know, it's, it's even interesting when you know, someone gets to an obstacle and they see somebody else doing it in a certain way, they, they may copy that. You know, Everest is one of our obstacles. It's a half pipe. You run at it. If uh, the first person who gets to it takes a 10-yard run up to it, then the next person will probably also take a 10-yard run up. That becomes the norm. Similarly, if the first person who gets to an obstacle is 30 yards away, that becomes the norm. And it's really interesting how you know, a precedent, once it's established, can kind of become self-reinforcing. So we had to start putting up barriers about 20 yards out. So people said, OK, that's, that's kind of where I'm supposed to start from. It's interesting. When people left their own devices will approach it in a very, very different way, but they will also look for cues from other people. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of a metaphor for entrepreneurship where there's uh, typically an innovator, someone who forges a path, and then others who sort of tweak and sort of improve on that? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's something to be said on a challenging conventional wisdom when you're trying to start a company. And you know that tends to mean when people come up with new ideas, rarely when there's something truly different are they embraced initially. I know the idea of focusing, I'm taking my own example, I said, I think there's a space for an event that's not a timed event. And it's very hard for people to describe Tough Mudder without talking about it as a race. And you know, I always have to say, actually, it's not a race, it's a challenge. I think a lot of people struggle to think of something as being completely new. You know, I, People would say, oh, I get it, it's like a triathlon. Or I get it, it's like a, a concert. And I'd say, well, it, it's kind of like those things, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's more like that than it is an automobile. I'll give you that, right? But um, over and above that, not really. And I think you know, there are a lot of examples of, um, of things that, with hindsight, kind of look like obvious and brilliant moves. You know, I remember you know, when Steve Jobs first took Apple into the you know, music player business, what was then known as the MP3 market, they said, what is Apple doing in this? There are already lots of established players, you know, and their product's so simple and all the rest of it, and of course, became a huge part of their business and spawned the iPhone and the iPad and all the other good stuff. But you know, at the time, it was derided by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I'm happy you brought up the logo again with people tattoo that on their biceps, on their calves, whatever. But uh, there's also the pledge, a very, very long pledge mm-hmm. that some people have uh, inked on their backs. How do you get people to uh, have that sort of loyalty? What are the ingredients that need to be in place? So perhaps explain for the uh, listeners what the pledge is. On the start line at a Tough Mudder, oh, no, it's uh, very atmospheric experience. Everyone's penned in together. Everyone's about to go off and do this 12-mile event, you know, kind of scary, somewhat intimidating. We have everybody recite and have their arm up and we put the pledge in front of them and everyone must say, as a Tough Mudder, I pledge that. I understand that Tough Mudder is not a race but a challenge. I'll put teamwork and camaraderie before my course time. I will help my fellow mudders complete the course. I will not whine. Kids whine. And I will overcome all fears. 
The reason we do that is because even though people know Tough Mudder is not a race, trying to get it out of people's minds, this is an event where you should try and run ahead of someone and beat them. This is something we're supposed to help each other through. I think you know, for a lot of people, that resonates. People understand that, that we can get caught up in life, in this mentality that we have to beat each other. You know, when we're at school, we get put on you know, curves. When we get told where we are as a percentile in the class vis-a-vis -vis our peers. And it gets ingrained into us that this is how we should behave. But the reality is in the long term, you know, the race is only with ourselves. And I think this, the concept of the pledge and the underlying values and philosophy is something that hugely resonates. So you know, we're in a situation where some people have had the pledge tattooed across their entire back, you know, and they will run the Tough Mudder with no shirt on so everyone can see. You know, they truly believe in what we're doing. And you know, that ties in for me to something that's very important to me as an entrepreneur, which is I believe the greatest companies, not just companies, any kind of organization, governmental, non-profit, the greatest organizations are purpose-driven organizations. They exist for reasons that go above and beyond just making money. I don't think many people go into work every day because they want to be part of a company that just churns out more profit. Maybe there are one or two exceptions on Wall Street, but I think for most people, they want to be part of something that they believe makes the world a better place. And I passionately believe, passionately, that Tough Mudder does make the world a better place. It encourages values that I think are important in society, teamwork, camaraderie, helping people, no one left behind, challenging yourself, overcoming obstacles that boost your, your confidence and your self-esteem. And I think all those values are tied up in what we are. And I think sometimes people call us an events company. And I understand that we do produce events, you know, but that's a little like calling Harley Davidson a motorcycle company. Clearly, Harley Davidson is much more than just a motorcycle company. Yamaha, Kawasaki, you could probably say those are motorcycle companies. But Harley, it's much more than that. It's a way of life. It's a sense of being part of something bigger than yourself. And so it doesn't matter that Harley bikes aren't the fastest or the most fuel efficient because that's not, that's not what it's about. You know, it's about being part of something bigger than yourself. And I think Tough Mudder, it's in some ways quite analogous, quite similar. It's an organization that has very clear values, a very clear sense of purpose. I think that's the reason it resonates so much with people. People want to feel part of something bigger than themselves. People want to feel like they belong to something and belong to something that stands for a mission and a purpose. And you know, for me as an entrepreneur, you know, the reason I continue to get up early and push myself hard every day is not because I go, well, the company might be bigger next year and that'll be great for me personally. It's because you know, there's a mission. And I believe the reason everybody else comes to work at Tough Mudder every day is because they believe in that mission. They want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, that fuels a lot of the growth that you guys have had. Um, so I'm going to run down a couple of statistics mm -hmm. here. When you guys started, you went from 4,500 participants in uh, 2010 to more than 2 million uh, this year. right? And uh, you just had a handful of events that first year, and uh, it's going to best 60 mm -hmm. this year, um, and possibly 70 next year. That's right, yes. And uh, to date, we've had the Tough Mudder, just one event, which is the 10 to 12 mile event within the, the Tough Mudder brand. We now also have the Tough Mudder Half, which is a five mile event, which we believe is going to further grow the company because we know not everybody is yet ready for a 10 to 12 mile event. So we wanted to create this five mile event that focuses on teamwork and camaraderie, but takes out one or two of the elements that are perhaps most intimidating about a Tough Mudder, principally the ice within the Arctic Enema, which is the obstacle that is a dumpster full of ice and electroshock therapy, which is the obstacle that has the live wires with 10,000 volts in them. So we've taken those out and we've, um, we've shortened the course. It's five miles now. But of course, it still has all of the mud and it still has all of the other great Tough Mudder obstacles, the Berlin Walls, Everest, Kiss of Mud, Mud Mile, all that great stuff is still part of it. And in addition, it also has um, some mystery obstacles which we'll be unveiling next year that are unique to the Tough Mudder half. So 
you know, new events are a big, big part of our growth strategy, and you know, we've grown a great deal since that. You know, the early days of you know me working um, from home on my kitchen table, you know, to where we are today. You know, over 150 staff worldwide, and that's really fun to be part of. And you know, for me, coming back to this point around being a purpose-driven organisation, you know, it's it's great to see what we've become and the fact that we've changed so many lives and know that we've raised so much money for great causes and we've raised over 10 million dollars for charitable organizations around the world and I, I don't say that to brag I say that to illustrate you know, a very important point which is you know great organizations exist for reasons over and above just making money and I think we, d- we don't achieve those things in spite of being profitable they're not contradictory we achieve these things because we're a mission driven the economic success follows having this wider sense of purpose. Sure. And as your uh, company grows, so the way that you need to lead that company sort of changes. Uh, there's a quote that I found that I really liked uh, that you said. It said, running a growing business is a lot like playing pool. In the beginning, it's like you're playing without a cue ball. Then you have a small team and you need the cue ball. Suddenly you have a lot of employees and it's like you're hitting seven balls in a row. You have to hit that first ball very carefully to get to that last one where it needs to go. Now. Back me up to a point that you realized that, um, okay, you needed that first step, that it wasn't just you alone, that you needed to have the cue ball, you needed to have yep. these other steps in place. Yeah, Take us back to that that moment. Sure. So you know, the first event um, in early 2010, we launched a very simple website. We had only one, to, one event on sale in Allentown, uh, Pennsylvania in May of that year. And um, you know, that was our aim, produce an event. Let's see if someone comes to it and you know, we'll, we'll reassess after that. It was quite phenomenal, frankly. Uh, you know, we sold over 4,500 tickets in only five weeks. We, we sold out almost immediately and you know, that, that was great. But of course, that created a, a very big logistical challenge for us that now we had to produce an event for a lot of people. And you know, I didn't know anything about producing events back then. I do now, but back then, nothing, nothing useful anyway. And so suddenly we, um, you know, we had to produce this thing. And so we built a small team, and in the first year, you know, we had five or ten employees, and we were a small, cohesive team. We all sat in one room. We could have a company meeting, and we could all go around the room. We could all talk about what we were working on. Everyone understood what everyone else did. And as the leader of a small team, you, know, you can rely on certain communication tools that actually become inappropriate as, as you become larger. So you can look at a small group of people, and you can read people's body language, and you can figure out whether people understand what you're saying, whether they agree with it, and... If somebody doesn't seem to uh, to agree with you, can say, look, let, let's talk about this. Nowadays, 150 people, you know, I go in front of the company and, and make a point now. You know, it, it's me speaking on a stage to a large audience, and um, it's not possible for me to scan the whole room and figure out you know, what people are thinking and whether it's gone over well. And, of course, as the company's become larger, we've become more diverse in many ways. We've had to bring in different skill sets. Roles become more specialized. And so, you know, in the early days, we were a bunch of 20-somethings, and you know, we were all kind of at a similar stage in life, broadly sort of similar set of experiences. Now, you know, we have some people who are straight out of college. We have other people you know, who have got kids that are kind of fully grown and, you know, and very, very different in every sense. And that's a great thing. You know, good companies need to be diverse. They need different experiences, different perspectives. But that means you, know, you can say something, and you know, two people will hear something completely different. And things can get misinterpreted, and you know that can create confusion. And if you're not careful, that can cause mistrust and resentment. You know, I think um, a good example of this was I remember being asked really what I thought was a pretty innocuous question around, uh, you know, is it important to keep your desk tidy? And uh, you know, I'm somebody that to work effectively needs to have a pretty organised and clear desk. You know, if I'm trying to write something, you know, I'll generally have one piece of paper and a pen next to me. But otherwise, you know, I'll kind of get the clutter out. 
Now, to be clear, I know lots of people are very successful in different environments. I know other people are fine with the music playing. Other people like to have stuff around them. And it's not just that they kind of succeed in spite of themselves. That's actually important to them. That's you know, part of you know, their success. So I was asked on you know, my own personal uh, preferences, and I shared that. But of course, that can when you're the leader of an organization, where you're the CEO, that can sound judgmental or even prescriptive to some people. So I know some people heard me saying, you should have a tidy desk. And very quickly, you know, in a large organization, people go, oh my God, Will telling me I have to have a tidy desk. I better tidy my desk, because when Will comes around, he's going to see a messy desk, and then I'm going to be punished for it. Of course, nothing of the sort was going to happen. But the trouble is, you know, in a small group, you can say, oh, that person's frowning at me, and you know, there may be a reason for that. I should probably figure out what's, what's the issue. In a large group, you just don't know. And then, you know, I have the head of our, our people section come to me and say, well, you know, people are very upset that you're telling them they have to keep their desks in a certain way. And you find yourself saying, but I, I, I never did that. You know, I never did that. And then, you know, people say, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Don't lie. Don't make it worse. You know, and I'm being a bit flippant when I say that. But, it, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a real point underneath it, which is as you get larger, you have to think a lot more about not even will your comments be taken out of context, but how will they be interpreted by people you know, who perhaps have very different experiences you know, and perspectives in the world as, as yourself. And of course, you know, when you're in the CEO, or CEO role, by definition, you know, your perspective is unique. You sit at the top of the organization. You know, in some ways, you see the whole picture. In other ways, you, know, you miss a lot of the, the detail. You know, I don't see people at an event in the same way that people who are involved in the event production are. You know, I don't understand customer frustrations in the same way that someone in the customer service team does. You know, I may get a kind of distilled version of that. But you know, and th these perspectives are equally valid and very important, and you have to make sure you capture them. And you have to think about that. You know, so you know, if customer satisfaction goes up, you know, me going in front of the company and saying, great news, you know, overall customer satisfaction has gone up. If you're the person who's dealing with um, you know, those people that aren't particularly happy for whatever reason, that can actually be a little demotivating. You know, it can seem like the CEO doesn't understand that we still have an area that we could get better at. So you, you have to be very mindful of that as the company grows. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point that uh, the context really changes as the company changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, as people have more specialized roles, people don't have the same access to information and miscommunications can become more rampant. How do you bridge those um, context gaps in your company? You know, one of the most important things is that you make sure that your leadership team itself is diverse and reflects the views and opinions in the organization wherever possible, but also understand that a company doesn't work well if it only functions in top-down mode. Not that there is a time and a place for that. Of course, there's a time when the CEO or any leader of any organization should go in front of the company and talk about the plan for the next five years. But it's also very important that messages are coming up to you and that you have truth tellers around you. It's uh, something of a cliche, but it's very easy at times to find that information is getting filtered out. It's often well-intentioned. It's not that somebody's purposely trying to mislead or hide things from you. They just think this isn't pertinent. The trouble is that you can lose sight of some details that are important. So making sure you've created the right mechanism and have the right people there. And if there is going to be some bad news coming, you know, it can be very tempting when someone comes to you with tough news to say, oh my God, what's gone wrong? That's terrible. Whose fault is it? You know, it's easy to get like that, easy to lose your temper. I know, because of course, you know, you're, we've all, we're all busy people who have things that we have to juggle. But it's very important when that happens that you understand someone brought this to you, they're doing you a favor. Much better that you know about a problem than, than don't. And I think the other thing that's very important, of course, is that you have managers and other leaders in the company. Our company isn't led by one individual. It's led by a group of people that step up and take responsibility. And, and if they see a message isn't well understood, that they will, to their particular group, their team, that they'll clarify and explain. And of course, we have 
people who have very different experiences. You know, we have a challenge that a lot of our company are on the road for big chunks of the year. You know, that means that our ability to interact and communicate with them is very different. So the role of the team leader within an event production company is absolutely crucial to making sure that messages are understood and that communication is flowing both up and down the organization and across the organization. Mm -hmm. As you guys uh, sort of plan ahead, what are the check boxes that new opportunities need to to make uh, on the checklist so you make sure the opportunity is worth taking? You know, it's interesting. I think Tough Mudder has a high-class problem, as people say, in business. We have lots of exciting opportunities in many directions. And people come to me all the time and say, hey, Will, we should have a TV series. Hey, well, we should have a training app. Hey, well, we should go and do Tough Mudders in Japan. Hey, well, you know, why don't we have an urban event series? These are all good ideas. These are unequivocally good things to be doing. The danger is you try and do everything. You spread yourself too thin. And Tough Mudder, we get lots and lots of our resumes to come and work for us. And I think we've had over 50,000 people apply to work for our company, which is an amazing statistic. But that means we have lots of people that fall into the category of overachiever. And overachievers generally are quite good at packing their days full with things, you know, and they'll get up early and they'll get their work out in and they'll have two or three projects at work and they'll go and do stuff in the evening and that's great and they're always busy. But we are conditioned to some extent in life to try and pack as much in as we can and you know, as an organisation you, know, you have to focus on doing two or three things really, really well and prioritisation implicitly means you have to deprioritize other things and strategy is as much about what you don't do as what you, you do do. That can be interestingly, a much harder thing for people that are very accomplished to understand than you know, people who are perhaps you know, a little bit more balanced in their perspective on life because they say, no, it, we have to do all these things. There are all these great opportunities. And you know, I always point out, it's unlikely we're going to starve for new opportunities. Far more likely we're going to give ourselves indigestion by trying to take on too much. So I think that's the most important thing to say. You never lose sight of the fact that you can only do a couple of things. Then, you know, of course, we, as we look at the opportunities in front of us, we ask ourselves a few things. The first one is, does it fit with the mission and the purpose for the organization? We want to produce life-changing experiences, mostly in the form of events, but not just events. And does it further this purpose we've given ourselves around promoting teamwork, camaraderie, getting people to spend time with their friends, challenge themselves, feel that sense of personal accomplishment? So we have to start from like, does this make sense from that perspective? And then, you know, like many businesses, we have to look at, okay, is this feasible? Do we have the financial resources to it? Do we have the internal capabilities to do this? And I think I'm fortunate. I work with an executive team that can also ask themselves the question, will this be fun? Will we enjoy this? And when we look at our partners that we work with, so you know, this year we announced our new partnership with uh, Merrill, the shoe manufacturer. And you know, one thing that was great for us is, you know, a lot of people were running our events in Merrill shoes already. And those people tend to have a very good time who are running in trail running shoes, not just Merrill shoes, but Merrill are one of the, one of the main brands in that space. Also, you know, we saw people who weren't having fun were running in gym sneakers and they'd get covered in mud, they'd get clogged up, their feet would get wet, and then their shoes would get sucked off in the mud. And of course, running a tough mudder with no shoes isn't particularly fun. And so you know, when we started working with uh, Merrill and exploring whether there was a partnership to be had there, it became very clear they shared all the same values as us. They wanted to move quickly. They wanted to be entrepreneurial. They weren't afraid to take some risks and fail occasionally. But they also wanted to build a community and they wanted to inspire people to get outside, live healthy lifestyles, but not necessarily push themselves to a point that life becomes miserable and you're kind of vomiting on the side of a mountain. That's not what they're about and that's not what Tough Mudder's about either. So so, to that extent, um, it made a lot of sense and that's something we've always looked at as well. Is this going to be fun and enjoyable? Because life's too short to be engaging in stuff that you you just have no passion for. 
Yeah. Is there also an element too when you're picking new markets where you're looking at um, the the cultures and the populations of the new cities and things like that? How does that sort of factor in? Tough Mudder now has uh, over 60 events around the world. You know, we are in most affluent English-speaking markets now: uh, UK, Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand. And as we have to now start looking a little further afield, so we have to first of all we have to say, okay, is there a population base that's large enough to sustain? Our events there, and we have to look at the average incomes in that market. And you know, to that extent, it's a bit of a science. But then you also have to look at: Do we think that this will play well culturally? Do we think this is an event that people will want to do? And I think just take North America as an example: a city like uh, Vancouver in British Columbia, and we get almost as many people coming to our event there as we do, you know, some of our events outside of LA or some of the big cities in the southern part of the United States. Why? Well, you know, people in Vancouver, I'm stereotyping a little here, but live very healthy, outdoors, active lifestyles, always looking for challenges, that kind of stuff. Perhaps more true there than in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So, you know, we will certainly look at that. And, you know, we try and look at as well, how easy is it going to be for us to take our business there? So, you know, when you start doing business in, um, in Australia, clearly things are somewhat straightforward. You have the same language, similar cultures. Um, when you go to Germany, which is something we did a year or two ago, when we first went into that market, in the first year, our sales were a little disappointing. And I remember going to the first event, and I looked at all the people at the event, and they were all in insanely good shape. I'd never seen anything like it. All the Everyone who was doing it clearly was spending three or four hours a day working out. And I thought, wow, Germans are in really good shape. And what became clear to us was that um, you know, our tagline, which is probably the toughest event on the planet... That wasn't well translated. You know, we worked with an agency there, and it became a little bit too literal. And what people in the German market heard was, this is an event that is impossible. No, no normal human being can do this, which you know, isn't the case. Tough Mudder is challenging, but if you train a little and you put together a team, you will get through it. And so a culture that's relatively similar to the US or the UK, we initially struggled for linguistic reasons. And so you have to look at that as well, and you have to figure out what makes sense. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in this talk that uh, sometimes strategy is what you're not doing. Is there something just in your sort of day-to-day that you make it a point to say, you know what, I can't do that. That's something that I need to leave to someone else, even though it's something that, gosh, <laughs> you'd like to be involved in. You know, is there something that you know that, hey, you know what, I can't I can't be part of that. Yeah, so it, it's interesting, right? The, um, you know, managing any creative process is really interesting. You know, you try uh, very hard when you're in the CEO role to say, this is just a suggestion. This is just something we might want to consider. But of course, unless people know you well, in a large organization, it's not possible for everyone to know you well. They think, oh, no, that's just CEO speak. Or that's just leader speak. For, you better go and do this. And, you know, that's tough because in the early days, you know, I was very much involved with the uh, creative process and you know, coming up with the new obstacles. And you know, that's just a fun thing to be part of. But as the company's got larger, you know, if I say, hey, here's something we should consider, you know, what happens? We talked earlier in the uh, interview about context. People here, Will says we have to do this, you know, which isn't the case. And people say, well, this isn't possible. Will Dean doesn't understand. And people get frustrated and upset. And that's not because you know, people aren't smart. Everyone who works at Tough Mudder is very, very smart and very hardworking. What it is is that you fail to contextualize things properly and you, know, you got involved in something that, frankly, you know, now there are people in the organization that are far more creative than me, far more industrious than me in many respects. You know, they should be the people doing that. And you know, that's a hard thing, but... You know, your role evolves um, as a company grows. And, you know, if, if you can't accept that, you get left behind. And I think, you know, that can be a very hard and painful thing. And so, you know, I've had to 
evolve and whether I like it or not at times. <laughs> Another lesson of growth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. A high class problem to have. A <laughs> very high class problem. Very good. Well, that's all the time that we have today. But I want to thank you, Will, for um, for all your time and all your insights. And I would like to uh, tell our listeners to uh, listen to more podcasts from this series. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and also follow us on SoundCloud. Mm-hmm.